0: Let's pray. Risen Lord, come in Your power, by Your Spirit. May we know Your presence transform our hearts to see You and to love You with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as much as we love ourselves. Amen. Many years ago, before God put me on a very unexpected path toward church ministry, I was studying to be a teacher and an athletic coach, and one of the requirements for my graduation was student teaching. I was placed at Berea Middle School with seventh graders. Lady by the name of Bonnie Kaye was my cooperating teacher. I had a good relationship with her. She appreciated my contribution to the class, and I appreciated her, but one day, She apparently felt that our relationship had arrived at that uh, comfortable place where she felt freedom to tell me what she thought about my Christian faith. Incidentally, I hadn't said anything to her about her atheism or agnosticism, but that didn't keep her from expressing her opinions to me. We had a lengthy chat uh, one day after school. I've long since forgotten. Most of what we said. But one thing does stand out. She told me how the whole Jesus story, especially the resurrection, was a story, and by story she meant a myth. It's a story that functions as a crutch. I remember that word very clearly. Functions as a crutch for people who cannot cope with life. Yep just that plainly, right to my face. It was interesting. She may as well have said, Jason, you're a weak, immature man who's been duped by people who have to propagate a fantasy in order to get along in life. That's basically what she said. I didn't fire back at her. I'm not sure that at that point in my life I'd ever had someone speak so bluntly to me about my faith. After all, I grew up in the South where everyone is a Christian. Bonnie was a new experience for me. Tragically, nearly months after this conversation, Bonnie, her husband, and her only daughter were killed in a car accident in Kansas over the Christmas break. 1993, I believe it was. And I've often wondered about her present reality. I've learned over the last 30 years since that student teaching experience that Bonnie is in good company. Many, if not most people, will simply say, look, that's fine. You do you. If the story of the resurrection of an ancient male Jew is what you need to feel comfort about life and death, well, good on you. And sure, they'll say, I guess we all kind of need Something in life to help us cope and get through. And if that one's yours, fine. The resurrection, at least the version that Todd read for us a moment ago, the resurrection we're told by most educated, sophisticated people is a myth that's been used for thousands of years now to give the world assurance that our lives can make sense that there's a such thing as hope, that we can feel the divine near us, much like we feel the spirit of our lost loved ones. It's a myth, they say, that even many preachers have embraced to persuade us that in spite of what we see and feel, love is stronger than death. Just that, nothing more, feelings. Young people, this is what you might hear at a prestigious university. Or maybe someplace like the University of Oregon. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I, I, hadn't, I hadn't come at that one yet. I needed to say that. I'm, I apologize. They will tell you, in those sorts of places, that human history is littered with myths that try to explain the world and dictate morality, and one isn't any better than the other. The point of any of those is just to help us cope, and with the inevitability of death. Resurrection is just a coping mechanism, a symbol of truth and peace and hope. And if that's the symbol that works for you, so be it. Nothing reflects, nothing about it reflects reality. But if it's a good existential crutch, then I suppose it's a good thing. The problem with all of this, of course, is that's not even close to how the New Testament portrays this event and the subsequent events in the lives of the apostles. Think about it. To say that very black and white, eminently practical, first century fishermen who couldn't even understand parables would suddenly flick the switch and embrace what we educated moderns understand as mythologizing and philosophizing seems utterly fantastical to me. They had no credibility in that world anyway. They weren't members of the religious elite, or the Roman military, they were common and uneducated. They were plain-speaking men who labored with everyone else who needed food to survive. If they caught fish, they lived. If they didn't, life didn't go so well. Life was just that simple for Peter, for John, for James, and the rest of them. Can you imagine? A group of men like that coming up with ideas like, let's just tell people that he's resurrected in our hearts. Yeah, that would work. Oh, I've got one, pipes up Andrew. Let's tell people that Jesus is the symbol that love is stronger than death and can live on. OK, OK, I like that, Bartholomew says. But where does he live on? Simon the Zealot, he pops up. Maybe he lives on in nature. Or in people who want freedom and fight to overthrow dictators. Yeah, Simon the Zealot would say that. Maybe he lives on in law and order and when everybody's nice to everybody else. <sighs> that might work for professors at universities in this country or even pastors at churches in downtown Portland. But I wonder if it's good enough for you. Is it good enough for you to stake your life on? Certainly not good enough for me, and if you've ever read the New Testament, it doesn't seem like it was good enough for the disciples either. By the time we get to Pentecost, which is a mere 50 days after this Easter morning, we hear Peter shouting to the crowd. That's what Luke says in Acts. Peter shouted to the crowd. People of Israel, listen. God publicly endorsed Jesus the Nazarene by doing powerful miracles, wonders, and signs through him, as you well know. But God knew what would happen, and his prearranged plan was carried out when Jesus was betrayed. With the help of lawless Gentiles, you nailed Him to a cross and killed Him. But God released Him from the horrors of death and raised Him back to life, for death could not keep Him in its grip. God raised Jesus from the dead, and we are all witnesses of this. Now He is exalted to the highest honor in heaven, at God's right hand. And the Father, as He had promised, gave Him the Holy Spirit to pour out upon us, just as you see Him here today. So let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, to be Lord and Messiah. Does that sound like myth-making to you? God raised Jesus from the dead, and we are witnesses of this, he plainly states. It's as plainly stated as the angel's words to Mary and Mary Magdalene that morning at the tomb. He is not here. He is risen, as he said. What could it be that would galvanize these practical, seeing as believing sort of men? that it was worth putting their lives on the line to continue to preach about this man. Would it be the nebulous hope of some afterlife? Would it be peace and goodwill toward everyone as we gather around the decorated Evergreen once a year? I don't think so. Let me ask it this way. Have you ever been in the room when someone breathed their last breath? We know what happens every day. We know what will one day be true for each of us. And yet, when you witness that event, it's a horror and indignity that you can never get used to. the destruction, both to that person and to those standing around that bedside, and the thought that, despite all our efforts, one day the world will forget about us, is almost too much to bear. Incidentally, I scoured the internet for nearly an hour trying to find evidence of Bonnie Kaye's car accident and death in 1993, only to find not a trace. Not a trace of it on the internet where all information currently resides. <clears throat> it's possible. I am one of the few still alive who remembers her. This is the power and the horror of death. It takes us, and we are forgotten. So do we really believe that amorphous and weak need sayings like, at least she's in a better place, are powerful enough to transform our lives, to give us an ounce of significance? Especially if those sayings, if we know fully that they are myths designed to help us cope. How ridiculous. So what makes us think that such a thought transformed those 11 disciples from average fishermen to men who were obsessed with preaching about this Jesus all the way up to their own executions? Something happened after that crucifixion. Everyone agrees about that, even the most skeptical among us. But to say that what happened was just a feeling, a feeling of love and hope and resurrection inside of these poor simpletons, is just to admit you're not paying very close attention. It's to admit that these men were foolish and should have returned to their villages and lived a quiet life it's much more of a stretch to believe they conjured up the whole resurrection story than to simply believe it happened. Mm -hmm. St. Matthew retells the story in such a way that indicates it was an unexpected, unlooked-for event. The women went to the tomb that morning, not looking to see if Jesus was up and about, strolling around the garden. They went for the same reason that you and I visit tomb to mourn. The Jesus movement was dead. His disciples had scattered. They were hiding to prevent themselves from being the next ones pinned to the cross. No one expected Him to return to life. And it seems like no one wanted Him to return to life. Imagine for a moment that you're Peter. It is post-crucifixion. What's going through your mind on Saturday, right? Jesus has told you things like, anyone who wants to come after me, let him first take up a cross and follow me. Cross. That's a bit more realistic now. He said, go, sell everything you have, give it to the poor. Then there was a time when Peter attempted to give Jesus some good advice and asked Him to stop talking about all this execution business. Do you remember that? And what did Jesus say? Satan! The guy who called me Satan and told me to get back in the bus? I don't want him back. Peter had promised Jesus that he would go and die with him only to flip that, and in an effort to save his own sin, three times openly denied even knowing Jesus at his darkest moment. Now, I've picked on Peter, but he wasn't alone in any of it, that's for sure. The Gospels tell us that the, that the disciples scattered. At least all the men did. The women seemed to hang around. So if you had scrambled to save your own skin while Jesus suffered, would you be wanting Him to come back to life? What would He say to me? Surely it wouldn't be good. It makes some sense, then, that the angel and the risen Christ have to keep saying to the disciples over and over again, do not fear. (laughs) Isn't it interesting that the predominant emotion on Easter morning wasn't hope or joy or peaceful contemplation. It was fear. I suppose that during His execution, the disciples were wondering, our Messiah is being put to death. Now what's going to happen to us? But after the crucified Messiah came back to life, no doubt they were thinking, He's back. Now? what's going to happen to us. Now, we're not so different, you and I. If Jesus simply lives on in our memories, in some fuzzy, impossible-to-pin-down kind of way, well then, after today, we just go back to business as usual, right? at least as long as we try every now and then to be good people as often as possible, we could return to all the normal ways that lead to death, obsessing over our money, worshipping everything in our lives, including our children, killing our enemies, both metaphorically and literally we could return to a certain acceptable level of violence and poverty and chaos in our city and beyond. So long as, a few times a year, we pause to remember this man who said so many wonderful things and promised us a ticket to eternal life. Yep, the status quo is fine and we will just squeeze the memory of Jesus into that. It's not the story Matthew wants us to hear. Earthquake, lightning, angels from heaven showing up, Roman soldiers falling as dead men. Did you catch the irony there? The women show up at the tomb. The dead man is alive. The alive men are dead. Nor do the women fall as though dead. They get the VIP treatment. As to the location of the Messiah and what to do next, the angel rolled away the stone, not to let Jesus out. He was already long gone. But to show them that he was indeed risen. Come on in. See the place where he lay. Come on in to the place that houses death, and you will find life. Now, go. And tell those cowardly men about this secret that you know. Death has been undone. All the powers of hell have been made a laughingstock. Because they unloaded all of their fury on this man Jesus. And as St. Paul puts it in the book of Colossians. God the Father disarmed the principalities and powers and made a public spectacle. It's one of my favorite terms in all the Bible. God is laughing and mocking everything that leads us to death. He is not here. He is risen, as He said. Go and tell His disciples. He is going into Galilee, a specific place. This is a real resurrection. There you will see Him. What else, what else could be said that can turn a torture and an execution on its head than that? The angel did not say, he's not here, but at least he's in a better place. Go seek out grief counseling. I promise you'll get through this. This is no time for insipid cliches. This is a time for fanfare and for resolution to follow the God who won't even allow death to keep Him from getting to us and giving us life. He came once, He was executed, and He came back. What kind of God is this, that He would go through all of that just to be sure that you are not alone? crutch for coping with life? Oh, I don't think so. Jesus' resurrection is the invasion into this world and into our lives of the King who rules over death itself. He's not an afterthought. He's the center of all existence. Listen to the words of the Apostle John one of the ones who looked into that empty tomb, as he describes this risen Lord. Then I saw heaven opened. A white horse was standing there. Its rider was named Faithful and True, for he judges fairly and wages a righteous war. His eyes were like flames of fire, and on his head were many crowns. A name was written on him that no one understood except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his title was the Word of God. The armies of heaven, dressed in the finest of pure white linen, followed him on white horses. From his mouth came a sharp sword to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will release the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. Like juice flowing from a wine press. On his robe, at his thigh, was written this title King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Does that make the hairs on your neck stand up? That is dynamite. He is risen, not for a feeling, but to be king. Have to do with you what place does he hold in your life are you squeezing him into the status quo he has invited you like he did to the Mary's that day to enter the tomb of death and discover that there is life our great enemy has been defeated And the impossible has taken place in space and time. If you're looking for a crutch in life, don't come to Jesus. There are plenty of other places you can go. But if you're looking for abundant life, life that can stare down death itself without flinching, then come. Come to the risen and reigning Lord. Thanks, Peter. Be-